this is Gunnar Milligansar. He has come to fight for his king. <laughs> Where have you been and why are you wearing civilian clothes? They wouldn't let me on the train naked, sir. You see, I missed the 814 full frontal flyer. <coughs> I mean, why aren't you in uniform? Well, uh, I'm not at war with anybody, sir. Silence when you speak to an officer! Oh. I suppose you know you're three months late arriving. I'll, I'll make up for it, sir. I'll, I'll fight knights as well. to Goompod. If podcasts were poultry, this would be the last turkey in the shop. Uh, my guest today is someone um, who I followed on Twitter for many years, and uh, he's one of those rare people that um, I, I've, I've heard nothing but good things about him. He's possibly one of the nicest people on Twitter. Um, I, I, I can't read one of his tweets without generally experiencing kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling, because he's very enthusiastic about, um, well, lots of stuff. Uh, although this is the first time the two of us have spoken, uh, I already feel like I'm speaking to an old friend. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's Walter Dunlop. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Not not a problem. My pleasure. Um, <clears throat> so I know that I know that you do have an interest at least in the goons. Um, we're, we're more or less the same generation, and obviously uh, not old enough to have heard the goons on the radio in the fifties. So how did you how did you discover them? It feels like I've almost always known them, but uh, I would almost certainly have caught repeats on uh, radio in the uh, early 80s. But the big thing that got me was uh, record libraries everywhere I went. I've moved about the country quite a lot, and uh, most of uh, the places I went to, the first thing I would do would be join the local library. And there was always a record library there in the early 80s, and there was stuffed full of the old BBC Records releases, and I was yeah. just drawn in. Yeah. I must have borrowed one, and then I was hooked for life. And then, as I'm sure with quite a lot of people, I found a copy of The Goon Show Companion in a charity mm. shop one day, and that was me lost for life, really. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of expanded ever since. Once you start digging into everything that all of the goons have done there's so much there so many riches to explore you you can just spend the rest of your life wallowing basically which i've pretty much done a lot of my guests who are roughly our age you know they they discover the goons through parents often the dad okay but yeah that there are a, a number like yourself who discover the goons independently just through going to the local library um, and finding the LPs, or in some cases the cassettes. Now, do you think, particularly LPs, do you think that the appeal to a youngster of one of the Goon Show Classics LPs was the covers, the cartoons? Very, very much so. The Hunt Emerson covers, I mean, mm. 
I don't know about you, but one of the things that, you know, uh, I, I always get about vinyl in particular, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is when you're listening to it, you study the vinyl, the cover, yeah. really, really intensely. And uh, in my head, in quite a lot of cases, those uh, Hunt Emerson caricatures are the characters in my head, mm -hmm. basically. And uh, I think I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, better more than the telly goons, for God's sake. Oh, God, yeah. yeah it's, uh, I don't know, if you ever wanted an example of just how bad the Uncanny Valley can be, just watch an episode of the telly goons. It's really quite unnerving. <laughs> it is. I'm going to be covering them in detail in a few months because it's the 60th anniversary coming up. Oh, excellent. Mm. Lucky you. Mm. Um, so, okay, and, and um, what about... The, the goons as solo performers, uh, Milligan Sellers, that sort of thing? I, I think I was bitten by Sellers, first of all, to be quite honest, because uh, Channel 4 used to specialise uh, in doing seasons of films devoted to one artist, a director or uh, a performer or whatever, and I've got a really clear memory of basically suddenly discovering Peter Sellers at some point in the mid-'80s. It was like... Uh, uh, the mouse that roared, the smallest show on earth. I'm mm. all right, Jack. That saw them all in about the space of two, three weeks, and then, uh, well, Milligan's film career is Sketchy. well, yes, yes, very much so. Oddly enough, a very, very good friend was obsessed with the Great McGonagall, so that was probably the first one I saw. But uh, yeah, just. Milligan just keeps popping up wherever you look. TV as well, obviously. It's mm. every time you think you've seen everything that he's done, there he is again. And Harry was, well, I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but Harry was always kind of the beloved mainstream entertainer. Uh, I, I grew up with the, him appearing on things like Highway and the like. So... To use a great phrase, I discovered in, a, in an old uh, listings magazine a couple of days ago, he is the goon with the golden voice. <laughs> so uh, he was, he, you know, he's just been kind of part of the television furniture for me my entire life. Uh, I couldn't really comment about uh, Harry's film career, to be quite honest, because I haven't really seen much apart from the obvious, you know. Uh, but I know he's out there as well. And, of course, down among the Z-Men which was a Saturday morning stalwart when I was growing up. But there's a, there's yeah. a, there's a very, there's a very good film called Jetstorm ah. from 1959, I think. Now, Harry, it's an ensemble. I mean, it's the cast is headed by Stanley Baker, always reliable Stanley Baker. Excellent. And it's, yep. it's a thriller set on a plane. Okay. And mm -hmm. it's got, it's got Harry is as one of the passengers and he sat for the whole film. He sat next to, I think it's Dame Sybil Thorndike. Oh, good grief. I think. Um, but it's also got people like Bernard Braden and um, uh, Barbara Kelly. Is that Bernard Braden's wife? Uh, uh, Bernard Braden's uh, wife, yes, yeah. I believe. Um, and, and, and a whole host of other faces. Um, and Richard Attenborough is the is the villain. Okay, but I won't, that's not of giving anything away. But um, that's a fantastic film. Uh, and and, and uh, it probably turns up on Talking Pictures TV, but I would recommend that. Uh, for because Harry's brilliant in it, um, so let us uh, let us get to uh, the the topic this week. In two thousand and four, a film came out starring uh, Bruno Ganz as Adolf Hitler. 
the much-memed downfall. The film was a huge success and scooped a whole heap of well-deserved awards, and rightly so, uh, although the guy playing Goebbels still haunts my dreams to this day. Um, like many people, I went to see it at the cinema, uh, but came out a little dissatisfied. You might even say irked. Uh, sure, the movie seemed to give a pretty faithful account of Hitler's final days and the events leading up to his death, but the filmmakers had, to my mind, missed out a small but important element of the Führer's eventual downfall. Surely the screenwriter could have included a short scene where Hitler says in passing to his devoted secretary that he'd have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for the Americans, the Russians and the British particularly that Schweinhund, Gunnar Milligan, which is a long winded way of saying that uh, today we are talking about the first volume of what would become Spike Milligan's septet of... Uh, is septet the right word for a group of seven, Walter? Do you know? Yep, I would have said so, right. definitely. I'll go with that then. Uh, of <laughs> what would become Spike Milligan's septet of war memoirs, um, the first volume, Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall, published in 1971. Uh, the book begins with the declaration of war in September 1939, covers Milligan's call-up in 1940 as 954-024 Gunner Milligan, him joining the 56th Heavy Regiment Royal Artillery D Battery, and all the spills and thrills he and his new army comrades experienced while essentially undergoing three years of preparation for active combat. It ends with them arriving in Algiers, about to face the sharp end of the war. And uh, the book is shot through with Milligan's trademark humour. It pulls no punches, and it was certainly groundbreaking as a wartime memoir with frank language and uh, no attempts to sanitise events. It's not wholly reliable. It's Milligan, how could it be? But here and there among the comic vignettes, there are a handful of quite moving passages where Milligan tacitly acknowledges that there's no place for gags, and he demonstrates his skill as a writer of emotionally affecting prose. Uh, Walter, so you, you nominated this book to come and talk about. Um, why, why this book? What does this book mean to you? Uh, how best to put this? It's pretty much distilled Milligan so far as I'm concerned it pretty much it's what 140 pages not much more yeah. than that anyway yeah. uh, it's cut to the bone it's utterly lean but it's got everything that I love about Milligan at his best there's also some of Milligan at his worst in there as well there are a, <laughs> a couple of moments in there that you kind of go about but uh Robeson Yes, Robson. That's the big one, yeah. very definitely. But uh, there's there are moments of pure poetry in there. I've I've taken note of a couple of point, a uh, couple of moments in it that I want to flag up where he's the prose absolutely sings. Yeah. it feels it feels to me. It, it's there's a point in it where Milligan says something about. Uh, a, Oh, the past, leave me alone. It and I always it feels like this is kind of the last time you actually see Milligan before the darkness descended. It's uh, the, the the time in his life that he looks back on where he actually seemed to not have the weight on his shoulders. Yeah, uh, 
I don't know if I'm right in that, but it, it, it I mean, obviously the the point in the, the memoirs where the shell shock happens, things darken perceptibly and the mood of the whole thing changes, but there are moments of purest sunshine in this book, especially in the, in the early stages. There's also the Robeson moment, but uh, <laughs> on the whole, it just, it's Milligan freewheeling. Yeah, absolutely. He absolutely cartwheels through that book. It it feels like it's one of the things in his life that he had the most fun writing, as well. It does. And it really does. Really shines through. Like you say, he didn't have any responsibilities, did he? Which he would later have, obviously heavy responsibilities, and he was just having fun. And I didn't. I haven't read this for many years. In fact, I haven't read the the Septet for many years, and in my head. I mean, how often do you read this, or how often have you read this? I've read them all about, well, I've read them all about twice in my life, but uh, I picked them up piecemeal, obviously, over okay. the years. But uh, I did I did do them all in a one and uh, a, a couple of years ago, and it is very much the law of diminishing returns. The, the earlier books are they're edited to the absolute squeak. Would that have been Jack Hobbs? That. Possibly, uh, yes, probably, thinking about it. Well, because in my head, because as I say, I haven't read them probably since I was, probably since, well, 30 years ago, I probably read them last. Okay. I think I've read this twice, and so this will be the third time I've read it, but again, a long time ago. In my head, I thought it just spanned a period from war breaking out to probably maybe 1941 at the latest, but mm-hmm. it, it goes up to 1943, which to mm-hmm. me... I don't know. I just I didn't realize that Milligan spent so long in England, if you know what I mean, before being shipped abroad. Exactly. It, it's the the first book almost feels like an extended prologue. It's kind of uh, second one's Rommel Gunner Who, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It, it kind of feels like that's where you know Milligan's war actually starts, and uh, the first hundred and forty pages are basically him learning how to be a soldier before it all actually kicks off before it gets dark yes i mean there's there's always i know there's always gags and there's lightness in the the subsequent books but this is the light i would say this is probably i I would assume this is the lightest of them all in terms of i mean it's lightest to 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 hold of course because it's such a slim Mm -hmm. volume but lightest in tone because he's not there's a there's a little bit i mean there's a few deaths in this book um someone loses a hand gets the hand blown off although again yeah, but, that black humor where he, it's, i think they're on salisbury plain he gets his hand blown off this soldier it's an extraordinary moment on the last day b subsection were firing smoke cells one got jammed in the breach sergeant jory rollins was in the process of removing the charge when it exploded in his hand when the smoke cleared rollins was looking at the stump of his wrist with his right hand 10 yards away on the ground there was a stunned silence and then he said well i'll be fucked Apart from initial shock, he was okay. But for him, the war finished on Salisbury Plain. The severed hand was buried where it fell by Busty Roberts. As he dug a small hole, driver Watt said, You're going to shake hands before you bury it? Busty Roberts' reply was never recorded. You know, wartime black humour. What else can you do in a situation like that except joke, really? Absolutely. And it's interesting because it's written... So he would have been writing this late 69, 70 around that time, I suppose. So 25 years after the war. 
and and more than 25 years after the events in this book um so how how reliable do you feel it is i know that he got a bit of criticism and he later defended these memoirs and said i i I wish the reader to know that he is not reading a tissue of lies and fancies it all really happened Mm -hmm. but obviously it's it's difficult to to judge it's difficult to say but a lot of it is fanciful surely to god yeah absolutely and that disclaimer yeah i'm fairly sure uh, I was I went looking to try and find evidence of this earlier on this week, and I couldn't actually track it down. But I'm fairly sure that he got into a bit of a spat with uh, Harry Edgington at some point over some of the things that he said in the memoirs that Edgington disagreed oh. with. Uh, it might be just memory is so subjective, isn't it? I mean, uh, if you were to ask me to recall stuff that had happened 25 years ago, my version would probably not tally up with anybody else's uh, and yeah. being you know going through a milligan filter as well it, it's going to come out larger than life and uh, it, it's i cannot imagine that if you got you know the d battery reunions that he used to yep. attend yeah i'm fairly sure that there were an awful lot of people after the memoirs came out basically cornering him going oi well, there's you know, a, yeah, because famously the 1973 This Is Your Life for Spike, he was interrupted at one of those reunions, I think, wasn't he? Yes. Well, the cameras aren't Christ. just here for the reunion, but because tonight, ex-bombardier Spike Milligan, this is your life. You call this a life? <laughs> Never thought you'd make it, don't look. Spike Milligan, this is your life, and I've been quite serious about it. And where better to tell your story than here in Bex Hill? Has it started? Thanks to you, yes, the unlikely scene of some of the most remarkable exploits of World War II. Get out of it. (laughs) A stirring tale that you've recently recalled in your personal war history, Adolf Hitler, my part in his downfall. Well, as you can see, your old comrades are out here in force, Spike. Milligan, you horrible little man. You were sergeant then, but now war's over. All friends forgiven. Ex Sergeant Bill Geordie Dawson. Geordie Dawson! How are you, Geordie, me darling lad? Look who's here, lads! Come in the front, look at the camera! Ex former guitarist Alf Files and ex drummer Doug. You turned up, you surprised! So you made it! And two more musicians, Spike. Two more, Spike, you lost touch with for more than 15 years from Huddersfield bass player Joseph Chalky White and wait for it, Spike, from Portsmouth crooner Jimmy Jimmy Devine. Devine. There's just one member of that band we haven't mentioned, Spike, and now I want you to watch that screen, please, over there. A very important part of your combination, your pianist and best mate, Harry Edgington, who, as you know, lives in New Zealand now, but wouldn't let this evening pass without sending you a special message. Ta-da! What are son? I mean, Harry Edgington comes out of this this volume anyway very well. In fact, he's... he's, It's... the, The way he is... The way he figures in this book, he's almost like a match for Milligan, for wit. Mm-hmm. Very, very much so. He, he's, he feels like Milligan's soulmate. Yeah. At time. 
Well, there's they, his, his... They, they do they write prototype goon shows. Yeah, the whole bit about the clubbers uh, having uh, having uh, you know been introduced to the goons in the Popeye cartoon, and that they basically start up their own little club and they build clubs and uh, sacred sacred clubs. Yeah, sacred clubs, nurks, not nourisher, and instant lumps and the like. <laughs> it's uh, and then they're basically absolutely thick as thieves. The pair of them. You know, that I would have said reading this that, uh, you know, Edgington and Milligan were tied together for absolute life. I wouldn't have been at all surprised if Edgington had turned up in uh, show business after the war along with everybody else. Uh, but he just seems to disappear. He emigrates, doesn't he? He goes to New Zealand, yeah, I think. My old stamping ground, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, well, I mean, uh, he, 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 his name is obviously immortalised now in. Because obviously he was the inspiration for the the word ying tong, mm-hmm. um, and in uh, as I say in the book in this book, the banter that Milligan either recreates or just invents between them. Oh yeah, um, there's a bit towards the end, of, right towards the end of the book, when they're on the on the boat bound for Algiers, and they're going through what they call fish infested, what Milligan calls fish infested waters. <laughs> And there's this scenario, there's this banter between him and Harry Edgington, where Milligan says, many fish are sympathetic to the German cause. There should be regular fish inspections, each being tasted for identification. Sir, this fish tastes like a Gestapo sergeant. Harry says, right, drown it at once. Spike says, it's not frightened of water. Harry says, then drown it on land, poison a hill and make it eat it. <laughs> that is pure goon show, isn't it? That is, uh, you know, I, I could hear that being a, 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 a Moriarty moment, definitely. Poison a hill, make it eat it. I mean, there was a goon show called Mount, The Mountain Eaters. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's amazing how these things echo back, isn't it? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that you get out of this book, of course, is... Uh, Goon show references just suddenly leap out. I mean, Bexil on Sea for a start. The fact that there's a, a place in it called Robin's Post. Yep. Was another big one. It's all of this stuff went in. Pevensey. Uh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I did, I'm sure there's others, but those are the ones that leap out. But the bit that I wanted to uh, raise uh, about Spike and Edgington, the bit that I absolutely loved. Uh, which absolutely pins down their uh, relationship is this bit just before they're all about to board uh, for Algiers and Milligan's back from leave. Uh, you know, that fantastic uh, meeting in the Anderson shelter with his family. Oh, yes. And he, and he comes back home and they're all just sitting around doing nothing. And uh, Harry and Edgington basically go, let's go and have a jam in the naffy. And uh, they go down and Milligan says, it was about one in the morning when we got in. For an hour we played. These foolish things, room 504, serenade in blue, falling leaves and the inevitable blues. In retrospect, it wasn't a happy occasion. Two young men away from home playing sentimental tunes in a pitch black naffy. Oh, yesterday, leave me alone. Mm. I mean, Mm. isn't that just brilliant? Isn't that just... That's just a gorgeous moment, that. It really is. Yeah, earlier in the book, he says, Milligan says, happiness is a mug of tea, a cigarette, and a record of Bunny Berrigan playing Let's Do It. 
happiness is a yesterday thing. Yeah, which is deeply, deeply bloody sad. I mean, the implication there being that Milligan can't be happy in the now yeah. as well. It's, yeah. uh, it, and it is weird that, uh, you know, his happiest, most carefree memories are in the days leading up to World War Two. It's remarkable, the fact that these are the moments where all of the responsibilities fall away. And and it's also odd, now I come to think about it, given Milligan's lifelong hatred of pushing of authority, the way he always pushes against other people telling him what to do, and yet here he is in the army, just absolutely in his element, although obviously that doesn't last. Does that make any sense at all? Or it am does. I just blithering? It does, it does. Why, why would you want to be in a heavily regulated uh, environment if you always wanted to kick against the pricks of authority? Yeah. Kind of. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but yes, it, it's that little moment. To, and again, the, the, the wonderful evocative image of playing sentimental tunes in a pitch black naffy. They're doing it in a blackout as well, which... You know, I can't even begin to imagine what life must have been like living under those conditions. But, you know, if you've you've got a trumpet and a piano, you can make something of it by the looks of it. Well, that's it. And and just getting back to authority figures. So when he first arrives, because he's three months late, (laughs) (laughs) because he got, um, well, he slipped a disc, didn't he? And so he was hospitalised. There's something about a hernia as well. I kind of didn't quite get the the chronology right, whether that was just a Milligan diversion or whether that had something to do with this delay. But yes, there's definitely a slip disc in the uh, the very early parts as the OHM uh, OHMS letters start piling up. Have you have you seen? Sorry to digress, but hmm. have you ever seen the film? The I think it's the Elf Garnet Saga. Yes, but not for quite some time. But uh, yes, I have seen it because that set during the war with a, mm-hmm. with a young elf garnet and a young um what's her name else is it else his wife else yeah yeah um which is dandy nichols um who i think was probably about 60 at the time was 65 <laughs> trying to look about 31 <laughs> you know absolutely didn't 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 quite pull it off um anyway but there's a scene in that where elf receives his ohms letter and he and he's because he's been, you know, he's been mouthing off prior to this about, you know, these bloody cowards, you know, not wanting to go and fight for the country and all the rest of it. Then he gets his call-up papers and he puts the letter, I think he, if if I remember correctly, he doesn't open it. He puts it on the mantelpiece and he kind of stares at it for a couple of weeks. <laughs> the uh, absolute terror that those things must have contained. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of got vibes from of that from this. Um but yeah, so I was saying before, when Milligan arrives at, at, in Bexhill on Sea, and um, is it Sergeant Jumbo Day that first greets him? Yes. Um, but he takes him to meet the commanding officer, which is uh, a character that we only we only know as Leather Suitcase, don't we? Yes. is is he Is he also Major Startling Grope, which is always the name that sticks in my head? Uh, it's are they two separate characters? I'm not sure. They... I wrote that down because Major Startling Grope. If you're are you aware of the LP Bridge on the River Wye? Yes. Um, the the there's a character in that played by Sellers, which is basically Bloodknock. Mm-hmm. But the character's name in that is Major Startling Grope. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, it's enough. 
astonishing name, isn't it? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Yeah, that does, Milligan doesn't make that clear. But you've got, I think, Leather Suitcase is so named because he wears lots of leather patches on his uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously Milligan has got no respect whatsoever for this CEO. But later, I think Monty takes over Southern Command and then they get a new CEO, which is Major Chaterjack. Yes, and, and there's re- real respect between the two of them. Yeah, Milligan says I would have followed him anywhere. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's that wonderful moment where basically uh, Chaterjack's standing up in the middle of a bombing raid and when it's all over, he basically says to them, now, <laughs> you, you know, now I've shown you what not to do. You'll know uh, for, for the future. And it's like, yeah, you kind of would do anything for somebody like that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it always felt that Milligan was always at his best if he had somebody who would push back. Mm. You know, it, it's a a framework for him to kind of bounce about within. I mean, you you get that in the Goon Show. If he's got a really strong producer, he seems to work incredibly well. But yes. Uh, yes. it's uh, certainly Chater Jack comes out of it absolutely as the 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 one person in authority who Milligan can actually respect. And uh, it certainly shines through in this, in this particular chapter of the memoirs. I didn't, I didn't write it down, but I seem to remember in the book, or it might be another person, but I'm sure that Chater Jack and Milligan were certainly in contact during the fifties. Yes. Yes, they are. Cause uh, Chater Jack at one point gives Milligan a, a, uh, a letter full of reminiscences for, I think it's a D battery reunion in 58. Right. Uh, it, it, there's lots of kind of, you may want to raise this and see what, uh, see what everybody remembers, but this is how I remember it, which is, uh, it, it's interesting that, uh, you know, once again, there's kind of Chater Jack's got one view of things that happened in the war and Milligan's obviously got another one, but, uh, but yes, they, they, they stayed in regular contact, I think. And there's so many characters. There's, there's, you, you've got Milligan, you've got Edgington, you've got the other members of the band to a lesser degree, um, Alf uh, Files. Alf Files and Doug Kidgel. Doug Kidgel. Um, but there's also, there's, there's the characters on the periphery, the other, you know, the other soldiers that are in the barracks with them. His description of knights in the barracks. Yes, Plunger Bailey. Plunger Bailey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's extraordinary. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm putting out an episode about the Goon Show episode, The Sleeping Prince. All right. Which is the, the episode where it's set during a, 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 a revolution in um, a South Pacific country. Okay. And right at the end of the show, um, Seagoon uh, mentions Plunger Bailey. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Once again, these names just stick, don't they? Yeah. Um, he doesn't go into any detail about the legend of Plunger Bailey, <laughs> however, because um, it's um, BBC Home Service. But do you, do you want to just delicately describe, I already have, because I've recorded that goon show, uh, that episode about the Sleeping Prince, but do you want to describe about uh, Plunger ba- Bailey's sort of party piece, if you like? I I will do my best. Uh, <laughs> I may end up giggling like mad, but if you can imagine... Uh, a floor show performed by the manipulation of certain 
pieces of gentleman's equipment below the navel. <laughs> it is probably the most well, delicate way of describing. Done. Well done. It's uh, <laughs> let's put it this way: at one point, he puts a pair of glasses on them and imitates Groucho Marx, <laughs> which is a moment and a half, definitely. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it's there are an awful lot of references to uh, nocturnal manipulations in this book. Is probably the most tactful way I can put it. Well, he, he talks about. He even talks about. I'm, I'm not sure how his brother felt about this because he talks about when he goes back home on leave before um, before embarkation, and he talks about when he goes back to spend a, a final night with his parents. And he says he basically says his brother, his younger brother Desmond's night manipulations were stymied by communal sleeping arrangements. Absolutely, and uh, that would be another thing I would imagine that uh, caused the relationship to be fractious. I mean, uh, Norma Farns always used to comment wryly about the fact that Milligan had very sudden dappled reminiscences of what life with Desmond was like, and so far as she was concerned, the pair of them used to fight like cat and dog. Mm. And uh, yeah, I can imagine if if any relative of mine announced in uh, a best-selling novel that that was one of the things that I like to get up to, yeah, I don't think I'd be terribly happy either. <laughs> the Yanks were coming, and we had our first case of crabs. I had no idea what crabs was, or as Smudgy Smith said, the Sandy McNabs. The victim was Sergeant Cusack. He discovered he'd got them on the eve of a week's leave. The MO told him to apply blue unction. Now, blue unction has only one use, to destroy crabs. Knowing this, Sergeant Cusack entered Boots in Piccadilly with the prescription during the rush hour on Friday. It was crowded. He whispered to the assistant, Can I have some blue unction? In a voice that could be heard up Regent Street, the assistant said, Blue unction! Cusack replied twice as loud, Yes! I've got bloody crabs! Do you hear me? I've got crabs! <laughs> It's very much a life as it's lived sort of thing. I mean, uh, it's the first war memoir I've ever read where you get like stuff where blokes are in the shower and they're basically comparing each other's sizes and things, you know, like Christ is poor wife and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, you don't get that in like Montgomery's memoirs or anything like that. So uh, it, it, it's very much the, the barrack rooms from the ground up. You know, you're, you're seeing the army from the inside out in yeah. this. It, it's, it's as you say, it's not sanitised in any way. Yeah, setting light, setting light to farts. Yes. <laughs> or poston blasts, as Milligan calls them. <laughs> a trouser trumpet voluntary. <laughs> and he calls he calls the the um, the performers that set fire to these as uh, he calls them artists. <laughs> yes, absolutely, and and of course, you know that. Possibly the funniest bit in the entire book for me, uh, the uh, performance in the garden during the break in uh, the dinner dance, where everybody goes out to the garden for uh, a leak. And as Milligan says, finding a bush, we ease springs. <laughs> These are accompanied by the usual postern blasts, each one greeted with cries of, good luck, fall out the officers, drink up, mine's a Guinness. And as their eyes became accustomed to the dark, they suddenly realised that over on a on a, a garden seat, Tony Goldsmith's sitting there with uh, 
the object of of his desires. And as they all try to sneak away, he just calls out, "Thank you, gentlemen." And what time's the next performance? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's you don't get that in your standard warm and war, do you? No. Just uh, talk, so talking about um, female relations. I don't yeah. mean I don't mean his mother, but in terms of you know. Um, there's there's lots of soldiers having or sleep. He says one soldier was sleeping with so many officers' wives he was excused clothes. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And there's a there's a moment in it as well where uh, Milligan has uh, an excitingly acrobatic night out with uh, a married woman, and then about a week later he gets a lift and he can smell her perfume in the car. Yes, as well. That yes. one, that bit stands out as well. Yeah, he meets just before he's um, off to Algiers. There's this dinner, dinner dance or dinner and dance, and there Spike meets and hooks up with a a woman called Betty. Yes, who he spends quite a bit of time with leading up to um, embarking, and he says she later wrote him sizzling letters, which he auctioned off. <laughs> yes, to the. I can't remember the exact phrase, but isn't it kind of the various people in the artillery <laughs> section or whatever? It's, yeah, just basically your randy British squaddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he's got no time for the commanding officers, apart from Chater Jack, of course, but he's he's constantly poking fun at the sergeants, like Jumbo Day and then the Sergeant Belcom. Yes. And he, he writes about Sergeant Belcom. And you can just hear the voice in your head, can't you, as, as he says this. He says, Belcom spoke with that sound peculiar to the Cockney larynx when he tries to speak posh. To obtain this metallic sound, you press the chin down onto the throat, apply slight pressure to the Adam's apple, purse the lips, the lower one slightly protruding, tense the tongue, lay it flat in the well beneath the lower teeth and say, You are all going to be... Horrible little soldiers by the time I'm finished with you. That sort of thing. Yeah, silence when uh, you speak to an officer. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's a beautiful moment, that. Probably the most famous line from this book, if you like, is the opening sentence or opening paragraph. Um, and I wonder how long he agonised over this because it, it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book when he talks about the fact that um, his mother's digging the air raid shelter. Yes. <laughs> She's a great little woman, getting smaller all the time. <laughs> I know. Two minutes later, a man called Chamberlain, who did Prime Minister impressions, spoke on the wireless. Yeah, Chamberlain's stepping down for a better man. <laughs> so Milligan's dad wrote off for the job. <laughs> just think little lines that just tossed off if you like you know just chucked off chucked away not chucked away but just uh you know uh just these perfect little one-liners um, absolutely and, and an awful lot of them uh, again i mean obviously because milligan's got his own unique style there's nobody writes like milligan uh for better or worse, there's nobody writes like Milligan. But, you know, things like with head held high and feet held high or my father was thrown out. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine him giggling at the typewriter when he wasn't cursing and throwing it out of the window, narrowly avoiding hitting Eric Sykes or whatever. <laughs> but uh, just that, yeah, just and his awareness of how ridiculous it all is as well. Yes. Uh, it, 
Yeah. I, sorry, I'm, ju I'm just looking at a page here. I've just uh, uh, the line whereupon he was immediately nipped in the scrotum, thrown out, and his horse whipped into a gallop. It's like you're not going to get that from anybody apart from Spike, are you? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Um, tell me what what is it? What's what's so bad about the Warsaw Concerto? I wish I knew. I, I, I wish I knew. I, I guess it's just the uh, the fact that he keeps on turning up. It's obviously something that absolutely just works on Milligan like, uh, you know, somebody brushing a cat backwards. It, if you do go back and reread the rest of the War Memoirs, you'll find he's got an allergy to Gracie Fields mm, as well. That's right, I remember that. Yeah. Later on, uh, she keeps popping up. It, it's... I mean, I don't know. Is it Anton Walbrook? Uh, keeps keeps being mentioned. Uh, he goes to see at least one film with with Anton oh, Walbrook. Yeah. It's got the bloody awful War Warsaw Concerto in it. So presumably they must have used it as uh, uh, a morale thing in wartime films. I don't know enough no. to actually be able to confirm that. But it, it, there's definitely something about it that gets him. Yeah. Yeah. And it is as a result. I can now not think of it without calling it the bloody awful Warsaw Concerto. I've got no feelings about it one way or another, but it is always in my head going to be the bloody awful <laughs> Warsaw Concerto. Yeah. There's a sequence, again, talking about barrack room japes at night. <laughs> when they would sometimes put a sleeping man's hand in a bowl of water to to make him whittle himself. <laughs> I'm not sure that that actually works, to be well, quite honest. I but, certainly don't want to find out. But but do you remember when you were a kid hearing that it, people, it was kind of like a little sort of schoolyard urban myth, if you like? You know, you'd, you'd hear people say if you, you know, if you've got someone at a party who's so drunk that they fall asleep, you put their hand in a bowl of water and they'll piss themselves. Um, <laughs> do you reckon that, that that originated from people reading this book? Oh, it's entirely possible. Now I come to think about it, I would imagine that this book was one of those ones that kind of got passed around the playground because it's got rude bits in it. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. I remember there's also, you know, the st there's a, it, it's got to be in one of the later books where Milligan's having a pee into a river and talks about the little fish that swim up the urine. Yes. Now, that's, yes. that's one of the memoirs, isn't it? That's in one of yeah. the memoirs. Yeah. And and that is also a, a playground myth. That one went round our playground as well. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. Weird how these things stick, isn't it? Yeah. Talking about urine. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent thing. Again, talk, you know, he's quite frank talking about uh, the men uh, pissing in their boots to keep them soft and supple. <laughs> oh, yes, followed by uh, cries of horror the next morning when people forget to empty them out. <laughs> There's a there's a weird uh, again. Is it there's more than one occasion where superior officers get drowned in piss in this book, isn't there? There's one, or am I am I conflating two? There's one the thing with the the gun bucket that's uh, rotted the floorboards. Oh yeah, and uh, mm. comes down in the middle of the night. And yeah, then there's the other the other one right at the very end. It's on the last page where a superior officer gets his. Uh, gets second-degree burns on his bum because he uh, drops a match into the latrine and it explodes on him. It's, yeah, because yeah, he, he says of that, that's as I say, as you say, that's right at the end. 
and um, Milligan says that he was our last casualty before we actually went into action. Next time, <laughs> next time it would be for real. <laughs> Excellent. Just one last urine-related <laughs> extract. He talks about Gunnar Mossman, who would always get drunk and then have a piss in the same corner of the barracks. And some other soldier was transferred or something or posted and uh, asked if he could sleep in that corner. And obviously Gunnar Mossman came in later that night and did the business. Um, and there was a fracas. And then there's an official order the next morning. The practice of urinating on sleeping comrades must cease. <laughs> yes, absolutely. An official memo and uh, the belief that it's going to stop them doing mm. that as well. There's also there's these little exchanges between uh, Milligan and uh, senior officers, which, again, they're pure fantasy, surely to God, but I just love them. I've highlighted them. Roll call one morning. Neat. Edgerton, tap. Milligan, Milligan. Gunner Milligan, tap. Why didn't you answer the first time? I thought I'd bring a little tension into your life, Sarge. <laughs> Followed by uh, at least uh, six days of punishment duty immediately afterwards. <laughs> Jankers is, is what they call um, uh, confined to your barracks, wasn't it? Um, yes, yes, I think so. I've just, uh, I've just looked up... Uh, the moment where they're, they're trying to put a tent up as well. Uh, there's a few swear words in this, but they are bona fide, you know, so... I know this, these aren't for the ears of children, but so if you have any children's ears, would you please put them in the box and hand them to the <laughs> At the new position, we were to live under canvas. It's very simple, said Sergeant Dawson. He was talking about putting up a tent. I've been camping a lot in my time, and I'll show them. Thirty signals drove for the RAOC depot at Rygate in a three-ton tuck, which made it something in the nature of 28 tonnes. We were shown a great piece of rolled canvas, six foot by ten by five foot. From it hung numerous lengths of trailing ropes. In picking the thing up, it was impossible not to stand on them. We lifted. It must have weighed all of 400 weight, and it all seemed to be on my side. It was but a few yards to the truck, but somehow we found it impossible to get there. The lump was moved in a much the same confused way that ants carry a twig. That is, there was a fair bit of going round in a circle, three paces backwards, a little bit sideways, then lots of going round and round again. <laughs> Straining around the edge were about 20 gunners, while underneath, taking the weight in their heads, was another 10. There was frequent swearing, unending strings of instructions, but progress, none. The far side of the lump had started to unfold, so the carriers on that side were lost to sight and carrying blind. The whole thing was becoming absurd. The lump was coming to pieces as we continually totted the trailing ropes. Those on the outside were getting tired, and the lump was getting lower and lower as the men underneath wilted. <laughs> Finally, collapsed in a heap of swearing gunners. The second attempt was started. This time, we just dragged the thing by its trailing edges and forced it into the lorry like stuffing a turkey. The lump now seemed much larger. <laughs> we crawled on top of it and moved off. On arrival, we dragged what was now a long, uncontrolled canvas mess through the woods to the site. Sergeant Dawson was waiting there. What the bloody hell are you doing, he said. Bomberly Hart explained, Ah, oh, we fucked it up, Sarge. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the squaddies versus uh, officialdom is obviously a, a major theme all the way through this. Everybody just basically taking the mortal piss out of each other to try and get by, I think. There's a time when Milligan does something so heinous. I'm trying to find the bit now, actually. Um, oh, he was hiding rifles in a loft. Oh, yes. The and thing that gets him solitary. 
he's sent to Preston Barracks in Brighton and given these really menial tasks like um, shoveling coke into a single pile in pouring rain. Um, but he says that he would receive regular visits in his cell from a humorless medical officer. And um, the first visit from this MO, there's a little framed photograph of a woman. And the MO says, who's that photo of? And Spike says, my fiance. And the MO says, throw it away. So the next time that the MO's due, Milligan's bitten all his fingernails and put the fingernail bits, I think, on the table. And when the MO comes in, he says, what are those? And Milligan says, they're my fiancés, sir. <laughs> and he says, throw them away. And then the following visit, Milligan's got a, I've got a lock of hair. What's that? It's my fiance, so I throw it away, etc., etc., etc. And Milligan says he was planning, um, planning on the the coup de gras to be an artificial limb, but he was, but he was released before that could be realised. Isn't that brilliant? And uh, the the capper of that, of course, being the the officer gets drafted overseas, killed during an air raid on Tobruk when an, a naffy tear falls on his head. <laughs> yeah, which I think he, I think, I meant to check before this actually because I think. He, Milligan uses that, you know, the tea urn falling on the head. You know, in the Goon Show scripts or the more Goon Show scripts, when he does those little character descriptions for the oh, future yes. characters, and there's the William Mate Cobblers. I think it's William Mate Cobblers injured in combat um, during the war when a tea urn falls on his head. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right, actually. I mean, uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, the William bit that always sticks in my head from that is that hobbies wandering around saying you can't park there to anyone who listens, <laughs> something like that, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at the list of things that Milligan has to do in uh, his solitary confinement. It seems to be one day it's all right, and then the next day they give him something absolutely terrible to do. You know, the six six foot high piles of coke into a one uniform conical heap, and then the next day he's drawing naked girls for the guardroom. Yeah, yeah. And then the next day after that, it's a trip to the beach to collect winkles for Sergeant's mess tea. Winkles, for God's sake. <laughs> oh, that's... Uh... And the saluting traps. It's like, uh, because, you know, officers are uh, conditioned to uh, salute as they walk past another soldier. And so basically they set off at 10 second intervals and watch as the officer saluted his way to paralysis <laughs> of the arm. <laughs> It's, there's a real, real feeling of kind of like this, not even a war, but just uh, officers versus uh, uh, versus the ranks, basically just constantly pushing against each other, just in, in order to get through, in order to survive life in the army, really. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, the band, they, so they've got this quartet, they, they make up this quartet, don't they? So like yes. you say, we've got Harry on... Piano, Spike on the trumpet, Elf. What does Elf? What does Elf play? I'm not sure what Elf I plays. I think I think Elf's guitar and Doug's drums, if I recall That's right. And they play quite a number of village dances and things like that. Um, and um, at one of the dances, uh, <clears throat> a drunk soldier who's feeling a bit maudlin and aggressive <laughs> rips open his shirt to reveal a scar on his chest, and he roars, "Dunkirk!" Whereupon Milligan rips open his shirt to reveal his appendix scar and shouts, Lewis in hospital. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And you can see him do it as well. Yeah. That's it. 
it's the music thing in this book as well. It, it, it threads its way through almost every page. It's I'm reading about Milligan's life and just how much being able to uh, play an instrument meant to him as well. Like you, you just, you, 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 I can only imagine how much even worse life must have been for Milligan if he if he hadn't been able to cut loose to play his trumpet whenever he whenever he possibly got the opportunity. There there are moments in this book where you just feel that he's absolutely at his most content and the most content is basically being with that band. It's and and again it might be something to do with the fact that it's his mates. Yeah. you know, his closest mates at the time. But uh, those passages really shine. The way you can still remember, like, 25, 30 years after every song that they played as well. Yeah. And the fact that at one, po- at one point he mentions the fact that there's one particular record that he can't hear anymore because it just blows him apart. And he has to basically go off and walk about for a couple of hours afterwards because the memories become overwhelming. It's... Well, that's that's, that's that, similar. That's similar. Sorry, that's similar to when he talks about um, <clears throat> Mill Wood, which was where they were posted at one point, and he talks about he he revisits Mill Wood in 1962, and he says the place was full of ghosts. I had to get out. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that comes up a bit later in the memoirs as well. It's like uh, on foreign jaunts or whatever, going back to places that he was at in the war and just not being able to cope. I mean, the, it's, it, it's almost as if uh, the good memories are almost worse for him than the bad ones mm. at times. Mm. And it just, it must have been, as you, as you say, it's the place was full of ghosts. I mean, that's the same for all of us, I imagine, but uh, even more so for him. Indeed. he He's not trying to make himself out to be a hero by any means or to be heroic. Um, I think at one point he said, well, there's the bit where, so so just before he's due to go on leave, the final leave to see his family, he somehow gets his hand injured and, ban- and has to be bandaged. Oh, when uh, when he gets his uh, his hand slammed in the tailgate of the truck. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And I think he, he arrives home with the bandaged hand and there's nobody in, so he goes to the local pub, and it's a, it's just at the time when the um, survivors from uh, Dieppe were being uh, picked up around New Haven, and it was very much on everyone's mind, and uh, people in the pub see Spike's bandaged hand and put two and two together and make five, I suppose, and they they assume that he's you know he's from he's back from Dieppe. And he gets a lot of sympathy and and free drinks, and he just plays. Yes. He plays. Well, I think he briefly hesitates and then thinks, "Oh, sod it," and plays along. And he says, mm-hmm. "For two for two hours, I've been a hero." Yeah, yeah. It's a, he knows very well that he isn't one, mm. uh, but uh, just for a couple of hours, he gets to pretend to be one, and he gets free drinks out of it as well. You know, as he says, uh, he realizes that if he if he if he said no then that would be it. The drinks would stop. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, go ahead. It's, you kind of get the feeling from uh, reading this that, yeah, he's, he's, he kind of, he's aware of the fact 
that he's perhaps not the bravest man there ever was. You, you know, it, it, he doesn't sugarcoat anything or how he feels. And as you said earlier on in this, there are moments whenever he realises that there are times when laughter isn't enough to get you through and uh, you're stuck in a terrible, terrible situation. And it, it, it almost overwhelms him on the spot on a couple of occasions is the bit with the, uh, the aircraft crashing. And he realizes that the first thing that happens is uh, his uh, fellow soldiers swarm in and strip them of absolutely everything usable. Mm. I mean, that is, a, that's a bleak, bleak moment in the middle of it all. Or at least that's yeah. that's how it felt to me. Yeah. On the eighth of January forty three, when they head head out to sea en route to Algiers, he writes Somehow it had all been fun, but now we were on to the truth. I don't yes. I don't know why, but I started to cry. So again, not 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 embarrassed or ashamed, nor should he be, to to you know, to admit that. Yeah, totally. It's uh, it is just that feeling where up to that point it almost feels like you're play acting, and then shit, suddenly it's real. Yeah. It's and I'm just trying to look it up. Uh, there's a moment I think where they're uh, taking off in the train in order to get to the the troop carrier, and I'm fairly sure there's a comment in it about. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, the train started as it pulled fretfully from the station. I suddenly realised that some of us were being driven to our deaths. Mm. Is a, a very telling moment. Yeah. It's, uh, it's almost as if the war isn't real up until that point. Yeah. I just There's a couple of eccentric characters in this book that I just wanted to touch on. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> there's Gunnar Oct- Octavian Neat. <laughs> I'm wondering if that's a, um, uh, you know, that's a, a, a pseudonym for, you know, uh, someone who didn't wish to be identified. Um, well, who knows? Uh, who used to get naked often, <laughs> just around the camp, and uh, at one point arrives in the barracks totally naked. I think he's wearing one sock. <laughs> and, he says, <clears throat> and he says, "Anyone know a good tailor?" Yes, absolutely, and he, he keeps buggering off and getting 14 days when he comes back yeah yeah and of course later and obviously milligan's if this is true which i'm assuming it is milligan's obviously told that to his friends after the war because there's that story that famous story that milligan tells of i don't know 1956 1957 he's at home there's a knock on the door he goes to the door and there's peter sellers stark naked and says do you know a good tailor? Again, it's the 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 way these these things just stick in your head, and you may not consciously remember them, but they bubble back up later on. Mm. And uh, you know, especially if you're having to deal on a daily basis with Peter Sellers, it's uh, <laughs> I mean, that that is a beautiful moment. Uh, it's yeah, I can see the pair of them doing that, and it's not exactly pleasing me, but it's certainly an image that's going to stick in my head for quite some time. <laughs> I wonder if Peter Sellers did uh, any Groucho Marx impressions while he was there. Oh, God, I really hope not. <laughs> there's also there's the sports day scene. Oh, 
sequence. Oh, the boxing match. Um, well, there's the boxing match, but there's also uh, Gunner Nays, I think it is. Um, oh, with with his amazing way of uh, doing the high jump. <laughs> Issuing from under the stands was a figure. He was wearing a red-hooped, loose football jersey, elastic-waisted blue military PT shorts that reached well below the knee, grey army socks dangling around his ankles, and white, slightly over-large plimsolls. He ran in a series of peculiar little bounds and leaps, flicking his feet behind him, which I thought was some sort of expertise muscle-loosening exercise. He was blissfully unaware of the comparison his comic garb made with his sleek muscle professional-clad opponents. By then he arrived at the jump-off. The warming-up had been terminated. The official had taken down the bar and temporarily rested it at three foot. Nays eyed it. He walked some hundred yards from the bar, then turned and started to run. It wasn't until he was halfway that we realised he intended to jump. He gathered a sort of lumbering momentum, but never got faster. Finally reaching his goal, he launched himself into a sort of schoolboy, double-your-legs-under-you style jump, and just managed to clear it. He seemed well pleased, unconscious of the puzzled look that followed his effort. Came time for the jump-off. An official signaled Nays and asked him if he was competing. Nays nodded. Nays walked back twenty yards, turned, and now saw that the officials had set the bar at five feet. For the first time he looked worried. He walked back a further fifty yards. He started his approach. The stadium fell quiet as the great athlete had bounded across the grass. We all felt that something unusual was about to happen. On and on he came, making little clenching gestures with his hands. He reached the bar, and with a triumphant shout of Hoi, hoi, hapla, and an almighty effort, he hurled himself upwards. The bar broke across his forehead. Cheering broke out from the stands. Gunnanese kept running. He left the field, he left the stadium, he left athletics. <laughs> Complete with a, a classic little Milligan drawing of uh, yeah. Gunnanese. So obviously he's stuck in his head. Yeah. <laughs> There's a little bit quite early on where Milligan gets his first glimpse of the enemy. I think he's walking along a cliff and a German plane swoops low and he's low enough that he can see the faces of the pilot and the (laughs) co-pilot. And he picks up a brick and throws it at them. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, and the sort of desperate hope that that's actually going to achieve anything. Mm. Again, um... Uh, um, it's been a while since I actually read this, but there's a bit later on in the memoirs where he, uh, he a plane flies low over him and he basically points his finger at it and shouts, bang, and the plane crashes. And he develops kind of this mystical reputation amongst the rest of the battery for his ability to down German yeah. planes just by shouting at them. <laughs> so, and, and, yeah, yeah, and again, the the whole thing in uh, certainly in this early part of the book, and you get this in Dad's Army as well. The no ammunition thing oh, in yeah. the early part of the war, you know, the fact that they're actually having to play act, which is probably why, towards the end of of the book, as you say, as they leave, he starts to cry because all of a sudden, it's, it's gonna it, be real. everything's gone live. Mm. Yeah, you know? it's showtime. Yeah, exactly. The rehearsal's Um, over. You don't really get the sense in this that he's pacifistic during this period. 
Um, he's not gung ho, but he's he does. There's there's little lines here and there where you know he 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 it gives the impression that he's really anti-German. You know, it's uh, us against them. You know, he's quite he's um, swept up in the whole fervor of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a bit when they're in Bex Hill, and I think they can see that he describes it as a sky on fire. They can see far away just because of the the color of the sky that london's being bombed and they can't yeah. they can't get through to the loved ones on the telephone and he's yeah. uh, he, they're all worrying about their families you know those that live in london and it's and he says he's the the, the tone of that is it, he kind of ex- exhibits these faint stirrings of pacifism which i guess yeah. were obviously to to grow and to develop mm-hmm. um, and take hold yeah, you, you kind of get the feeling that, you know, he might not necessarily have been actively pacifist, but because of what he saw and what he went through, it was basically, yeah, it, 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 everything changes for him because of the war. That You know, the, there's, there's, there's Milligan before he gets drafted and then pretty much everything that he is as a result of what happens to him uh, it's uh, he sees death basically at close quarters yeah uh, it's probably the best way i can describe it and, and milligan being milligan of course you know uh, the first defense is humor but the black dogs immediately behind him at yeah. all times yeah absolutely you know the there's the, the whole thing about milligan the poet as well hmm. uh, in an awful lot of his writings certainly uh every now and then you know with milligan the the jokes just stop and he gets wonderfully lyrical there's this bit i wanted to raise about what it was like in the summer of 1941 uh it's a very idealized vision because i'm sure like britain britain during wartime was not entirely like this but the way he describes it is beautiful uh, if you don't mind i'll just read it because i put it highlighted yeah. here uh no matter what season the sussex countryside was always a pleasure but the summer of 1941 was a delight the late lambs on spring legs danced their happiness hot immobile cows chewed sweet cud under the leaf choked limbs of june oaks that were young 500 years past the musk of bramble and blackberry hedges with purple black fruit offering themselves to passing hands Poppies red, 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 tracking the sun with open-throated petals, birds bickering aloft, bibulous to the sun, white fleecy clouds passing high, changing shapes as if uncertain of what they were, to break for a smoke, to lie on that beckoning grass and watch cabbage-white butterflies dancing on the wind, everywhere was saying, bethank it. Isn't that lovely? It's beautiful. Isn't that just lovely? Yeah. And then, you know couple of pages after that you know we're back to the fart gags and whatever yeah. but uh, <laughs> you know just oh and uh, immediately below that we've got the line i started to read the situations vacant in the daily telegraph and prematurely advertised gunner 954024 retired house trained war hero unexpectedly vacant can pull a piece of string and shout bang with confidence <laughs> so basically you've got both milligans on one page yeah. there and that's that's one of the things that makes this book magic for me it's totally everything about spike is in it yeah if that makes any sense yeah and if listeners haven't read the book as we say it's a very slim volume with 140 odd pages so you can you can read it in a day 
Um, <laughs> and I did. Yeah, and me. Um, the book was adapted into a film quite soon after publication, Adolf Hitler, My Partner's Downfall, starring everyone's favourite, Jim Dale, as Spike, as the young Spike, and Spike himself as his father. What a surprise for you, Terence. Chateau Libesson, 1934. He won it in a raffle. Yeah. It's at shelter temperature. Thanks, Dad. Now remember, we've always been a close family. Never been parted before. Anyhow, let's hope that after this war we're still together and happy and in one piece. Till it's over then, let's string a toast to the family. To the millions. He's only in it twice, but God, he makes it count. Does spite with Pat Coombs as his mom, which is an interesting little. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a very very good film, and uh, I utterly recommend it. I enjoyed it much much more than I was expecting to. I watched it for the first time yesterday. It's uh, it doesn't it doesn't get a, it's it's generally regarded to have been a bit of a stinker, but I saw it years ago. I haven't seen it since, and I can't remember a lot about it. I will probably be doing it on this show at some point in the future but i can i can revisit it then um and yeah and the book was also adapted into an lp uh in 1981 uh featuring milligan with um uh, guest artists uh, john wells alan clare and of course graham stark mm-hmm. um and there's also a stage play in uh 2009 mm-hmm. um so Conclusions. What conclusions? I mean, I I would say, uh, this is this having not reread the others yet. I, I I still feel I can confidently say that this is the best of, of the yeah. memoirs, and um, and it was it was before everything became dark in Spike's world, and and yeah, and the war informed Spike's worldview, like you you said earlier, informs the war the worldview of. That entire generation, I would say, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm not the first person to notice how many bombs and explosions and people dying and coming back to life are in uh, episodes of the Goon Show, yes. but it's. You can't help but feel that basically everything after the war is a a reaction to it. Uh, it's it's but spiked more than most, I would have said. Well, he need. I think in a way he needed the. He probably disagree, but he needed the war. If the war hadn't happened, would Spike have yeah, probably just become a musician or something, wouldn't he? Uh, mm. It's, hard to it's an interesting one, isn't it? Mm. It's, uh, you know, would he ever have got out of Jimmy Grafton's attic? Would he ever have got into Jimmy Grafton's attic? Yeah. Come to that, yeah. if it wasn't for uh, the contacts he made in the war. It's, uh, yeah, for better or for worse, the war pretty much informs everything that he became, I would say. And I know he was very proud of this book. Um, <clears throat> and he wrote to uh, his close friend, Robert Graves, the writer of Goodbye to All That, uh, soon after Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall, was published. And he wrote, he wrote, Beyond My Wildest Dreams, It Became a Bestseller. The mm-hmm. first thing I did was to phone my parents in Australia. And in doing so, I realised, in fact, I was a little boy of seven, running to his mum and dad to tell them that he'd got a good conduct star at school. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it sold 30,000 copies and it had to reprint almost at once. I can't tell you how good it feels for a person whose education ended at 14 to be a bestseller. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's validation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
and he's rightfully he's right to be proud of it. it it's it's a wonderful book it's i kind of feel with the memoirs that as they go on they could use a stern editor definitely but the, this one as i said right at the start of this it's so compact and so compressed Lean. you know there's there's mm. not a not an ounce of fat in it and uh mm. I would I would probably say it's it's my single favorite book that Milligan ever came out with. Oh, and not not Pacoon. Not even not Pacoon. I mean I love Pacoon very very much so but uh, this one just that wonderful mix of kind of wit and enthusiasm and that keening nostalgia as well that breaks through every now and then it kind of if you wanted me to point at something that would demonstrate you know why i've been fascinated by spike milligan i don't always love him mm. you know but it's uh, you know there are times when i could see him far enough but uh i don't always adore him but uh i find him constantly fascinating and this book is probably exhibit a uh, everything I love about him is in here and yeah. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah. When I was reading the book, preparing for this, because I'm a Twitter whore, I, uh -huh. um, I, uh, I, from the Goonpod account, I tweeted that I'm rereading Adolf Hitler, My Partner's Downfall, and this sequence had me hooting. And I quote the bit when Spike's applying to join the RAF. And I think it's Leather Suitcase who asks him, have you ever flown before? Milligan replies, "No, sir, but I've been upstairs on a bus." Yeah. Okay. So, uh, which I love, but I, I tweeted that, and I got huge response, huge response. Right, a load of people um, liking it and all the rest of it, but also um, some replies, and I just just a handful of replies. I just wanted to mention because um, it just shows the sort of the the love for the book. Roger Roger Stevenson says, uh, "I once read extracts to a class of." 11 year olds as they were studying world war ii <laughs> imagine wow. that i told yeah. them i told them this is what it was like for the ordinary soldier i had mm -hmm. to i had to tone down the language in places i'm sure you did roger um uh steve hyatt says the line about oh this is a line we haven't quoted the line about the light bulb in the office's office that was such a low wattage that when turned on it made the room darker <laughs> <laughs> yes um <laughs> Uh, ben Grabham says it's a genius book perfectly encapsulates that fear of being called up some of his comrades were based on this book possibly more out there than Spike mm -hmm. and uh, Raimundus Dekis says it's amazing he made it through the war alive thought his COs might have dispatched him smiley mm -hmm. face so yeah um, so a lot of love for the book obviously yeah. off the back of that um, and as I say it's uh, it's you can probably get it uh, probably pick it up for I don't know uh, a fiver off, off Amazon and it's a quick read and it's uh, there's there's multiple laughs on every every single page yeah very much so very much so and lastly just one point um, you might not be aware of this Walter but on this podcast I I try to include as many uh, gratuitous references to a certain much maligned perhaps comedian of yesteryear okay mm -hmm. and a little bird told me that something happened at your wedding 
which gives me the perfect excuse to evoke the name Hilda Baker again. <laughs> oh, it very, very much did. Yes. It's a treasured memory, believe you me. <laughs> Go on. Uh, would you like me to? Uh... Yes, yes, please. Yes. Uh, at our wedding, uh, during the evening, basically before the wedding, I sat down with the person who was running the uh, nighttime entertainments, the disco, and he was like, "Is there anything that you don't want to, you don't want me to play, or, or whatever, and uh, or is there anything that you do specifically want me to play?" And I, you know, got through a fair amount of things, but the thing I missed out, uh, the thing I, I didn't mention because uh, it never even crossed my mind was stuff from Greece, which of course turns up at the wedding quite a lot. Mm. And uh, somewhere in the middle of uh, the evening, uh, you're the one that I want stands on. And two gentlemen of our mutual acquaintance, uh, Louis Barf and Ian Greaves were at the wedding, I'm delighted to say, and I can still see them now standing at the side of the dance floor as this kicked in. And the pair of them burst into an absolutely note-perfect rendition of uh, Arthur Mullard and Hilda Baker <laughs> at such a volume that it actually drowned out the music. And they were note-perfect. Well, I say note-perfect, as note-perfect as you can be. But, uh, yeah, it, it that I can think of very few people were blessed with something as wonderful at their wedding as as I was with that. I mean, I can still hear, you better shape up because I need a man <laughs> blasting across the dance floor and people wetting themselves laughing. So yes, Hilda Baker was present uh, on a very, very happy evening. So uh, wow. I'm delighted to share that with you. Very, very few things more disturbing than Hilda Baker and Arthur Mullard dressed up on that episode of Top of the Pops. If you're filled with infection, you're too sly to convey. Medicate in my direction. Feel your way. Terrifying. Absolutely yeah. terrifying. I, I, I mentioned that guy who played Goebbels in Downfall earlier. Actually, I think <laughs> I think um, Arthur Mullard and Hilda Baker on top of the pops just just pips it. To they the haunt horror. your nightmares. <laughs> uh, well, Walter, listen, it has been a blast. I've really enjoyed talking about. It's nice to talk about a book as well for a change because we too often on this are talking about you know films or goon shows or TV shows or whatever. So it's nice yeah. to talk about a book and. Um, uh, take it a bit take things a bit more highbrow for a change um, so uh, uh, so thank you very very much for joining me today and uh, um, I would uh, I would love to get you back sometime if uh, if the fancy takes you oh thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for asking me loved every minute of it <laughs>